Hey y'all, welcome back to the Brianna Approved Podcast. We have an amazing guest today. If you're interested at all in gut health, probiotics, your microbiome, you're going to love this episode. We have Karan Krishnan, who is not only a microbiologist, but he is a gut health expert and a research microbiologist with over 20 years of experience in nutrition and dietary supplements. He has a strong research background and has conducted numerous human clinical trials, I believe over a dozen, we'll get into that, uh, in nutrition and also has hands-on R&D experience in the field of molecular medicine and microbiology at the University of Iowa. He has developed over 50 private label nutritional products from small to large brands in the global market. And in 2012, he co-founded Microbiome Labs, which has become a leading brand in the delivery of microbiome and probiotic-focused products based on much of his research. So Karan, thank you for coming on the show today. I am beyond ecstatic to have you here. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, approving me on the Approve podcast. I'm sure it's an interesting time for you to be an expert in this field because gut health has evolved so much over the past few years. However, the research on the microbiome is still somewhat in the neophyte phases as people get more into researching specific strains and understanding our diversity and all of that. So what would you say has been some of the biggest changes that you've seen in uh, kind of in the gut research world and maybe how you define a what gut health means to you now with having over 20 years of experience. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, one of the key things I've seen changed over the last, um, I'd say about seven, eight years in the in the gut health research area is the technology that we have available to us to understand the role of the microbiome in your overall health, wellness, and basic functionality, right? So when microbiome research first launched, uh, we were predominantly using things like 16S sequencing. What that means, it's not that important, but just know that it's low resolution sequencing, meaning it's really hard to get down to figuring out the species of uh, of an organism that is impacting you know some outcome. So you get good information at the genus level and order and family and phylum and so on, but at the species level, it becomes hard to, to resolve that really appropriately. And so a lot of the data that we got early on was really very trend-like data that gave you an idea of the impact of microbes to a certain degree, but it, you couldn't really get into the nuts and bolts because you didn't really understand which species spe specifically impacted which pathology. And that's important because then you, you'd have to be able to look at the species to understand what you know, capabilities they have and which of those capabilities may impact that pathology, right? Uh, so for example, early on, the idea was there's this Firmecides bacteroidetes ratio, and that was associated with metabolic health, right? So Firmecides and bacteroidetes are the biggest phylum of microbes in your gut. There are thousands of species that fit within those phylums. So those two ratios are a little bit off. You have a little bit more Firmecides than you have bacteroidetes. Then there was a tendency to have metabolic dysfunction, but that doesn't tell you much because there's a lot of Firmecides that are really important for metabolic function, right? There's bacteroidetes that may not be important because there are these categories, these groups are just so big. Um, then when you get down to it and you go, ah, within that category, Acromantia mucinophila, or, you know, Fecalum bacteria prosnitsi, or a particular type of Lactobacillus ruteri, are the things that are driving some of the me mechanics around obesity or metabolic uh, health, then you can start to really understand the impact. And then not only that, you can utilize that information to create therapeutics, right? So the specificity and the higher resolution around the research and, and thereby the data that comes out of the research has been a huge revelation because it really helps us understand which microbes specifically have an impact and, and how they have that impact, right? So what are the uh, mechanisms that they have in their genome to be able to do that? Um, so that's that's been really, really interesting and exciting to see the evolution of the science occur, and it's only going to get better. I think that somewhere around five, four or 5,000 papers being published a year related to the microbiome, right? So it's, it's, it's absolutely a scientific revolution because 
I mean, we're talking about over 50, 60,000 papers in just the last few years. So there's a lot to learn. Uh, and then there's a lot of improvements to be made as well. With that said, so then uh, the, the second part of your question about what what is gut health to me, um, I actually had a chance to do a whole talk on this um, uh, probably about a month ago at a conference. Um, to me, my definition of health in general and my definition of gut health, especially, is resilience. Right? I want to I want to be able to live and make 20% bad decisions and still be fine, right? I don't want it to be where I have to be perfect in my choices in order to be healthy and well and so on. The human condition is built around this idea of resilience, right? The reason we are at the top of the food chain and top of the evolutionary ladder is because we are resilient to lots and lots of environmental and other stimuli, right? Like, like most of the animals aren't in the animal kingdom, right? For example, you take an obligate carnivore like a lion, right? And then you, you take it to one of its preys, like the wildebeest, for example, right? Who's an ob obligate herbivore. So the, the if there's a drought and there's no plants and there's no greenery, the herbivores populations will plummet because the, the wildebeest can't go hunting all of a sudden, right? They don't have incisors to break down meat. They can't, they don't have any capability on instincts to do that. They can't start digging for roots and tubers, right? They can't do those things. And so their populations go down. And as a result, the lion, which is an ob obligate carnivore, and their food source, which is the wildebeest, starts to go down, they suffer. The lion can't all of a sudden climb up the trees and pick berries and eat those or eat insects and all that. But the human in that same condition can, right? The human can eat all kinds of stuff. We can eat insects. We can eat roots and tubers and berries and vegetation. We can eat small mammals. We can eat all kinds of things because our system is designed around being resilient which means that we can live in every corner of this earth as we do, right? In almost every um, imaginable climate. I mean, you think about Chicago, uh, where I am right now, right? It's like it's like the living in the North Pole. Um, and then in the summer, it's like living in the Sahara Desert, right? But we can adapt to these environments, right? There's very few animals that can adapt to all those kind of animals. And a lot of that is because of our resilience. Our, our biology is a biology of resilience, Loss of resilience makes you ill-adapted to living in the environment. And that's where, to me, a lot of disease comes from. Uh, and that, you know, 80-20 rule of making 20% bad decisions is fine to me because that's where a lot of living happens in that 20%, right? Um, and so so that's, that's my, my general idea around gut health and overall health. I love that you said resilience because I will die on this health hill that we are now living in this world of anti-everything, anti-stress, yeah. anti-inflammatory, anti-germs, like antibacterial, all the things. And I'm always about this idea of modulation, not you know evading things totally and figuring yeah. out how to support systems in the body, mechanisms of action, how these things are working, which is why I'm such a stickler, especially when you were speaking about the specific strains and the research in that, I was busting at the seams because anybody who's ever come to me, people will always say, what's the best probiotic I can take? Or I used to have a friend who would you know, eat like garbage and she'd be like, what probiotic can I take right now? And I always joke and I say, you can't probiotic your way out yeah. of the basics. And as you know, all probiotics are not created equal. So yeah. I would love to hear you kind of break it down for somebody who was new to probiotics, again, because I think back in the beginning research, it was all about how many CFUs you could get. It was like 100 million CFUs, and people thought a little bit was great, so more is better. And sometimes you don't want to always add more bacteria to the problem. But now we are seeing more specific strains coming out at much smaller CFUs. We're seeing spore-based probiotics. We're seeing um, you know, uh, heat-killed probiotics, prebiotics, all that. So how would you maybe either classify some of those or if somebody's like brand new, like, where do I even start? Are more CFUs better? Should I focus on a strain? What should I be looking for if I'm reading a probiotic label? Yeah, a very important question. And, and actually, that's kind of the foundation of, of Microbiome Labs and why we started it was it, you know, I, I jumped into the world of probiotic research in the research company that I own. So I, uh, prior to Microbiome Labs, I owned a, a clinical research company uh, and then also a technology development company where we develop ingredient technologies 
um, both in terms of improving fermentation, extraction processes, understanding active ingredients and categorizing them better and so on. So I had a, um, a large uh, multinational brand, health and wellness brand company that approached us and asked us to really you know, study the probiotic market and, and kind of come up with the idea of what would be the next generation probiotics because they were getting a lot of competition on the shelf from all of these, you know, scaling probiotics at that time. This was back in 2008 and nine when, when like the probiotic revolution just kind of started. Uh, so you had a lot of brands jumping in uh, and everyone was com kind of competing on the same basis, which is what you said. See if you count number of strains, uh, some of them are refrigerated. Those are the high-end probiotics, right? And and this company came came to us and said, hey, can you help us figure this out? Like, what is a good probiotic? You know, what would you do uh, if you were formulating a product? So, so that's how I got into it. And when I got into it, I started to realize that there's a just, you know, for, for lack of a better term, a lot of bullshit out there, right? right. It's just, it, none of it made any sense from a scientific perspective. But then it, 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 it does resonate when you think about like where probiotics came from, right? So to give people a very quick, brief history on it, um, the, the guy that's actually um, credited to thinking about the first probiotic is a Russian scientist named Ily Mechnikov. Uh, and he actually won the Nobel Prize for his work because uh, what he was doing was he was uh, improving diseases like cholera uh, back in early 1900s, so 1902, 1904, 1906, with a fermented milk product. And he was fermenting it with a particular type of bacteria he called Bulgarian bacillus. Um, they didn't have characterization technology for bacteria, so that's that's what he called it. And he was fermenting milk and then feeding that to his patients. He was a medical doctor and they were getting better, right? So he's the one that really revolutionized this idea that there are good bacteria along with the bad that we know cause disease in the case, in that case, cholera. Um, and, and so you can utilize good bacteria to improve health. And so he was given actually the Nobel Prize, which I don't know if I mentioned that or not for his work, um, but that started a bit of a revolution and movement to it, this idea that there's good bacteria and there may be some way to harness their effect, right? So all of that was done through fermentation. Now, fermentation had been practiced for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years up to that point as well, but it was done so for food preservation. Now, fermentation was starting to be looked at as a therapeutic. Right. So then all of these other people started participating in different forms of fermentation and finding cultures and bacteria and all that were really good at doing fermentation of different substrates. Then in the 1960s, there were two researchers that really coined the term um, uh, probiotic, which meant for life. Uh, uh, their names are Lily and Stillwell. Um, and they published a paper talking about these bacteria that can be used at fermentation um, that were for life, that were life-giving, right? Um, and so they coined the term probiotic. And so, so from there, the world of probiotics started, started developing. Now, again, that was largely based on fermentation. You take this culture, you put it in a substrate like milk or you know whatever it may be, cabbage or sauerkraut, uh, and then you let it ferment to a certain degree. They were measuring the end of fermentation by specific characteristics of taste and smell and so on. And then when you reach that end of fermentation, then you normally stop the fermentation either by heating it or putting it in the refrigerator or whatever the technique may be. Then you consume that food with health benefits. Now, at some point in the in the 70s and 80s, the idea was, well, if these bacteria going into this food substrate are good for, for you, because it's clearly the bacteria that are providing the, benef uh, the benefit from the fermentation, why don't we just take the bacteria itself, right? And, and the more, the better. And so that's when this encapsulation of these fermentive bacteria started developing what we started to look at as kind of modern day probiotics, right? And like anything else in, in our megalomaniacal world, more is better. So then one company would launch and they'd go, this has 10 billion CFUs. Another company would go, you know what? Mine is better because it has 15 billion. Mine is better because it has 20 billion, 25 billion, right? And they just keep going up in number when there's no scientific basis for those kind of doses, right? And keep in mind that fermented foods are a very special category of potentially therapeutic products. Not all fermented foods are going to be therapeutic for all people, right? But they are therapeutic to a certain degree, not because the bacteria that are being used for fermentation are going and living in your system, 
right? It's the fermentation that's the most important part. And the reason that's the most important part is what you're doing is you're creating new nutrients that weren't part of that food to begin with, right? So you take dairy, for example, and you ferment it with a lactobacillus ruteri, you're going to get the ruteri producing all kinds of peptides and, and, and amino acids and all of these amazing, amazingly functional uh, uh, products that weren't present in that dairy to begin with. And then when you consume that, you're getting all of those therapeutic compounds into your system. It's those compounds that are providing the benefit. And normally, if a bacteria is really good at fermenting something outside of the body, it's not going to be able to live in the body well, right? So the whole concept was kind of uh, nonsensical to take these fermentive bacteria that are good at fermenting and creating kind of a superfood, if you will, and then take that in an isolated capsule as a probiotic, right? So that's where the world of probiotics came in. Um, now, also keep in mind that until the late 2000s, we didn't really understand what was even living in our digestive tract, right? Because the vast majority of microbes in our digestive tract cannot be plated. So any of those people that have done a, a my, microbiology or biology lab maybe did an agar plate at some point, right? So you streak things on it, whether you take a sample of the doorknobs or you know some part of your body and you streak it out and you try to grow colonies on there, that's called platings, right? So what you're doing is taking bacteria samples from different regions, you're growing out on nutrient plates and you're putting it in an incubator, they're all growing at anaerobic, at aerobic conditions, sorry, which is oxygen-rich conditions. Now, 95, 97% of the microbes that live in your gut cannot grow under those conditions. Most of them find oxygen to be toxic to them, right? So we didn't have the technology to even sample stool that's coming out, grow stuff from the stool to see what was actually living in your gut. Right, because the vast majority of microbes cannot be grown that way. So until sequencing technology came along in the late 2000s, we really did not understand what was even in the gut. Right, so all we for all we knew was nothing but lactobacilli, right, or bifidobacteria, or the few organisms that we could culture. Right, so our view on what the gut microbiome looked like or the ecosystem of the gut was very was very uh, archaic. Right. For all we knew, there was only a half a dozen microbes in there at very high amounts. Uh, these are the ones that we could plate out uh, from a stool sample. And so what we're doing when we're putting putting in uh, 10 billion, 20, 30, 40 billion, we're actually influencing the uh, the ecosystem in a significant way. Right. All of that turns out to be false because now we know that we've got 30, 40 trillion organisms in the gut. We can have upwards of a thousand different species, and the vast majority of them are very well anchored in your gut, that outside bacteria find it very hard to have any influence on them at all, right? It doesn't matter if you put in 50, 100, 200 billion, it sounds like a lot, but compared to 40 trillion, it's nothing, right? So we had to divorce ourselves from all of those ideas, or hopefully we people start to do that, uh, from all the old ideas of probiotics, right? So what should people look for when it comes to probiotics? Um, at the end of the day, what you really need is not see if you count. It's not the number of strains. It's not the number of species. None of that matters. In fact, some of that can actually work against you. If you have these what I call kitchen sink probiotics where you've got 15, 16, 17 strains in there that don't necessarily work well together or haven't been proven to work well together, 30, 40, 50 billion CFUs, they can actually to some degree compete with your own microbes. And most of them are going to be inflammatory. Right. In some of the studies that were done at University College Cork, they showed that lots and lots of probiotic strains, very commonly used probiotic strains, are actually inflammatory. They upregulate all kinds of inflammatory pathologies because this you've got uh, foreign bacteria coming into your gut at high amounts, right? And your immune system sees that and then it's going to respond to it. Right? And it responds to it with a huge array of inflammatory responses. And so you don't necessarily always want inflammatory microbes coming in at high levels that could potentially compete with your own microbes. Right, The Weizmann Institute published two studies showing that if you use a kitchen sink-like probiotic with many, many strains in it and many, many lactobifido strains, and then you take in a course of antibiotics, you actually slow down the recovery of your microbiome by utilizing a probiotic like that with an antibiotic. 
right? So we have to really look at the science and start to divorce ourselves from those old ideas. More is not at all better. More species is not better. In fact, I would be very wary of any product that has 10, 15, 20 species in it, right? Because, and especially if they haven't done a clinical trial on the finished product, that's where you really distinguish it. Because we've also seen that strains compete with each other. They can knock out each other's functions, right? These are complex biological system. It's not like mixing vitamin C, which is a simple compound with vitamin B, right? Those two vitamins, when you mix them together, they're still gonna function as vitamin C and vitamin B, right? You take two microbes together, they're living entities. You just don't know how they're gonna interact until you test it. So, um, so forget all the CFU count, forget the number of strains, that is immaterial. In fact, I would stay away from really high CFU count probiotics and really high strain counts, especially if they don't have a study on the finished product proving that it's actually beneficial. What you really need to do is look at probiotics from two categories. Um, and, and this includes postbiotics, prebiotics, ghost probiotics, and so on. We'll, we'll talk about what each of those are. Um, but you want to look at them in two categories. One is a uh, category of probiotics that, that is generally beneficial for your microbiome, meaning it protects and rejuvenates and provides resilience to your microbiome to a certain degree. And then number two are ones that have very specific function to attenuate a pathway or two in your body, right? Uh, the, I'll give you an example of each of those. So the first one, which is what we launched, was a spore-based probiotics. Now, the reason why the spore-based probiotics as a category, which didn't exist before we launched it, by the way, we created a new category of probiotics. Uh, the reason why they are generally good is because evolutionary biology has dictated that we consume these microbes on a regular basis through the environment, right? And you consume lots of microbes through the environment if you live the way humans live for 99% of the time that humans have been here but only a small fraction of those microbes can actually survive through the gastric system and then have any sort of function in the gut. We honed in on the spores as being those microbes because they can form these endospores that can allow them to survive through the gastric system. They get into the gut and then they do quorum sensing. They can read the microbial environment. It doesn't take a, a huge dose of them. A couple billion CFUs is plenty. They can read the environment. They can identify the presence of dysfunctional bacteria. They will sit next to those bacteria and they have numerous ways of competing and bringing down the growth of those bacteria. We've shown this in studies with C. diff, for example, or streptococcus and numerous other pathogens where the spores can find the pathogen sit next to it and bring down the growth of the pathogen. At the same time, they increase the, the growth of the commensal bacteria, the beneficial bacteria like your keystone species. So they're like the orchestrators of your microbiome. They do a thing that we don't have the capacity to do. We've essentially outsourced it to microbes in the environment, right? So that's kind of a, that's a category of a general health resilience type of microbe. As, as it so happens, that kind of change that it creates in the gut also alleviates a very, very important condition called leaky gut. And we've been able to show that in a couple of published studies, right? So, and leaky gut is the biggest driver of chronic low-grade inflammation, but it's driven by an imbalance of microbes in your system. So when you have a uh, an effective microbe that can rebalance the, the ecosystem, you can essentially uh, you know, alleviate leaky gut. So that's a general health one. Then the specific function probiotics are things like psychobiotics, right? That are that can be dead sometimes or it can be alive. If they're dead, they're often called postbiotics or uh, ghost probiotics or zombie biotics, as many different words. Um, but they function even when they're dead because it, there's usually one component of that bacteria that creates a change in your system. Uh, a good example of that is the um, uh, the Bifidobacterium longum 1714 strain, right? It has this unique carbohydrate structure on the outer membrane of the bacteria. And one gene codes for that. And all of its psychobiotic activity, its ability to bring down anxiety, stress, reduce cortisol peak when you encounter stress, reduce inflammation in the central nervous system, improve sleep, all of these things that it does, all is based on that one carbohydrate gene. Your body knows how to utilize that carbohydrate to attenuate a lot of the inflammatory responses that occur in stress. And so that probiotic has that one function. 
right? And you wouldn't use it for uh, eczema. You wouldn't use it for psoriasis. You wouldn't use it for leaky gut necessarily. You would use it for anxiety and stress. That's a one specific function of it, right? So we're getting better at those kind of specific therapeutics that certain strains offer. Um, and then you, you need to have a general resilience like probiotic as well. In both cases, you need to verify that the company has done human clinical trials. If you haven't, then you have no idea what the bacteria does in the system. We cannot assume uh, things when it comes to bacteria. You cannot use borrowed science either because strains are absolutely different, right? So the 1714 strain is a biflongum strain. It differs from all of the biflongum strains by that one gene. And so you could look at all the 1714 research and go, oh, that's bifidobacterium longum. Here's a product that also has bifidobacterium longum, so it must do the same thing. If it's not the 1714 strain, it won't. Because even though both of them are bifidobacterium longum, this one has a carbohydrate gene that this one doesn't. Without that gene, it's not going to do any of those same things, right? So it becomes really important to be very specific about species and subspecies and utilize the one that has done the research because you can't get equivalent functionality when it comes to bacteria. No, I love that you said all of that because that's been my theory and what I've just done in my private practice for forever. And it's great yeah. to hear an expert confirm that. But I think something that a lot of the listeners probably don't know is that clinical testing is not something that is required by supplement companies. It's actually quite rare in the nutraceutical industry. And with that, it doesn't always mean that every clinical study that is run by a company is always of the right quality, whether it's double blind placebo, how many participants, so on and so forth. So I think that is really important. I am seeing more of a shift now around conversations about what's the quality outside of just GMP and some third-party manufacturing testing, but clinical testing is important because it's like, hey guys, this is verifying the science and proof of concept in actual humans as well. So I think that that's really important to hear and the specific strains. So, I mean, I know, like we, we just chatted about this a little bit, like this idea of people will say, okay, I just took an antibiotic or I'm having, let's say uh, diarrhea associated with antibiotic with being on antibiotics, or I recently had food poisoning or whatever it is. Right. And you said the thing about like, if you're stressed, we should be taking this strain or if we're, you know, and I, and I think that that is really an important conversation for people to understand is that what works for one person with anything when it comes to our health is not going to work for everybody. And especially because our microbiomes are so individual to each of us, like, you know, it's our own little genetic, you know, fingerprint, if you will. So is there for some people, right, we're kind of born with what we're born with, but are there things that we can do as far as supporting the, you know, the host and sort of having manipulating quote the microbiome, if you will, because I know there are times in our life when the microbiome changes a bit, you know, in adolescence or um, if we're pregnancy, things like that, there can be bigger shifts, but are there things um, maybe that are maybe not so conventionally talked about, like making sure that we're, you know, not getting too much inflammation and stress and things like that, that can really change the microbiome that you're born with or support it in a more beneficial way to optimize the mechanism of action for some of these strains or just, you know, the microbiota in general? Yeah. Um, if we're talking about the gut microbiome, there is a, uh, what I would call the most important goal with your gut microbiome. And this is what will build resilience as well. And that is increasing diversity in the gut microbiome. And diversity is looked at with two lenses. It's not just the number of organisms, but there's a degree of uniformity to them as well, right? So you may have, let's say, you know, 300, 400 different species in your gut microbiome, but 15 of them make up 80% of the, of the cells, you still don't have good diversity, right? Because the, the vast majority of the microbes, their numbers are too low for them to effectuate any, any function. And so what you really need when it comes to diversity is a good variety of, of organisms, and you need to have certain degree of uniformity as well. So then how do you achieve that, right? So of course there are people, lots of people, at least 33% of people are born through C-section. So they're already gonna have low diversity to begin with. And then you're gonna have lots and lots of people, almost everybody that has had multiple courses of antibiotics from childhood onwards, right? Which means that all of that is gonna impact your diversity in a significant way. And then if you live in the Western world, if you live in North America or even uh, Westernized Europe, 
Um, you're you're going to encounter on a regular basis things that are hurting your diversity. So everything from you know the chlorine and fluoride in our drinking waters to our diets being very low in diversity in terms of foods, um, antibiotics that are in your water and your food supply, the you know pesticides, herbicides, all of these things around us all the time are designed to kill microbes. And so it's going to continuously hurt your diversity. And and that to me is actually probably one of the biggest drivers of chronic disease is this loss of diversity within the human microbiome. And this, uh, this has been really well illustrated through a couple of programs. So there was a book, early, early microbiome book called um, The Missing Microbe by uh, Martin Blazer out of NYU. Um, and then since then, he and another researcher in the microbiome space has done a uh, a movie called The Invisible Extinction. Uh, and that the idea there is that, you know, the loss of species diversity in our microbiomes is a big driver of disease and loss of resilience, right? Because our microbiome is what provides us resilience. That's the majority of our genetic capability comes from the microbiome, more than 80, 90% of the genetic capability. So as we lose microbes, if we lose functional species, we lose functionality, we lose adaptability, we lose resilience, right? And that's a, that becomes a breeding ground for disease states. So when you think about what can you do, um, everything you do should, should focus on one of two things, and everyone should have a few things they actively do each day that fit into one of these two categories, right? Category number one is reducing the things that you expose yourself to that you know harm the microbiome. Right. So, you know, you wouldn't uh, deliberately take an antibiotic every day just for fun. Right. It, just like, you know, people used to smoke all the time. Now we know like, OK, that's kind of a dumb idea. Like, let, why don't we not smoke anymore on a regular basis? Right. We know that that's harmful for us. So we know that things that you do that will hurt your microbiome are harmful to your health, right? So this, we need a concerted effort to avoid those things. So let's talk about what some of those things are. Um, number one is eating of processed foods, right? And the problem with processed foods is not only do they not have nutrient density, they're not feeding a lot of microbes, they're not feeding your system with the nutrients. Uh, they also have lots of preservatives in them and uh, you know antimicrobials to keep them preserved in those beautiful packages sitting there on the shelf for years on end. Um, they're not well fermented by the microbes in your system. Um, they can drive you know, glycemic response higher than, than non-processed foods. Uh, but then also a lot of them are um, very low in diversity of macronutrients, right? So it, it becomes very easy to go through your day just consuming calories from processed things just because you need to get some calories in, right? And and then end up in that, by the end of that day, having only eaten like six different types of foods, right? Like, you know, wheat, you basically consume some of that. Wheat, corn, there may be a source or two of protein somewhere in there. There's some sugars, maybe there's some fatty acids in some of the things you ate, um, you know, seed oils and things like that that may be in there. There's, there's not a lot of diversity in any of those foods, right? There's about four or five, six different categories of, of macronutrients that are that make up the vast majority of those processed foods. So you're not feeding your microbiome anything good. At the same time, you're diminishing the diversity because there's only certain categories of microbes that can metabolize those food sources, right? So then all the other ones that are sitting by and waiting for more diverse food sources to come through, their numbers start to diminish. Right. It's an active ecosystem. It changes with what you put in it. Right. So the processed foods not only don't feed them the right diversity, but also all the preservatives and all that that are in there. And then, of course, all the pesticides and herbicides that may be found in these foods can have a negative impact on your microbiome. So that's one of the first things you can try to improve and avoid. So eating more real food, a higher diversity in your diet throughout the day. Think about you know, maybe even uh, categorizing or forget categorizing, just uh, counting the number of different things you consumed in a day, right? Just challenge yourself to do that for three or four days in your regular eating patterns, and then actively try to improve that, right? So if you, if you categorize and you go, well, I'm only eating about seven or eight things a day, 
I'm going to try to double that the next week and then just add in a few things, right? So if you eat, you know, processed foods and all that, just add in a banana, add in, you know, a cucumber that you cut up and just, you know, put some olive oil on, add in some nuts, add in a few things just to increase the number of macronutrients that you're consuming, right? Um, that in itself can be really beneficial to your microbiome, which then will become really beneficial to your health. Um, so that's that fits actually in both categories, right? So the feeding the microbiome and then avoiding things that hurt the microbiome. Uh, the second part of it is um, getting exposure to microbes in the outside world. This is a very innate thing, right? So we were we were born, we passed through the vaginal canal, or hopefully a percentage of people are. You get an inoculum from mom as you pass through the vaginal canal, and then you actually encounter feces as well, because most women will defecate to a certain degree when they're when they're giving birth. So you encounter bifidobacteria, for example, in mom's stool. Um, th that becomes an early inoculum, and then once you're once you come out, you do skin to skin, you nurse, and all of that, and that gives you a nice variety of microbes that start to become your foundational microbiome. But that's only in the first year and a half or so of life, right? The rest of your life, the 99% of your life, you're encountering microbes in the environment, right? And some of those microbes play a very important role in diversifying your gut microbiome and also controlling microbes like on your skin, for example. And so the most innate thing to do in terms of our relationship with microbes in the outside world is to sit down in a natural environment and eat right? That's what all our ancestors did, right? They sat on the ground, they sat on logs, they sat on rocks, and they ate food. They ate food from the environment, right? A lot of those food may have dirt on it. Most of that food was not sterilized, right? So they had microbes from the environment on the food, but even the act of consuming food in nature brings in microbes into your system, right? So one of the things I tell people if they're dealing with gut health issues or immune health issues, or even anxiety issues and gut brain issues, right? It may be counterintuitive, or you may not realize the impact of doing something as small as going out for a walk in a natural environment, bringing some food with you, and then sitting down in the natural environment and eating. You know, if you do that three or four times a week, you will see that there's a significant improvement in your constitution, right? In your resilience and your ability to deal with the condition that you're dealing with. These are some of the fundamental things that then whatever supplements you're taking, you know, whatever other therapeutics that your, your practitioner may be putting you on, all of those things will work better in your system because you have a more diversified, more functioning microbiome, which then means you also have a more diversified and functioning immune system as well, right? So just those, those two categories of things. The other thing is stress management. Stress is probably... Um, I would say in the Western world, the number one driver of dysbiosis in individuals, right? We may think it's antibiotics and pesticides and herbicides and all that stuff. All of those things, of course, have an, a huge negative impact. But the stress we experience from for every day has a huge impact on your microbiome because every time you go through the flight or fight response, through an external stressor, you're actually increasing the growth of pathogenic bacteria in your system because there's lots of opportunists that have been designed by nature to look for stress hormone uh, expression in the host, which is when they express their virulence factors, right? So multiple bouts of stress throughout the day is like taking multiple little doses of antibiotics, which disrupt your ecosystem. Stress also creates lots of inflammation in your brain, in your heart, in your, in your uh, muscles, and so on. And then stress often negates your ability to sleep, which means that you're not repairing your microbiome, your, your cellular systems, you're not going into autophagy and all these things at night when you're supposed to be resting and getting adequate rest. For a lot of people, stress also means eating more, right? So you're, you're compensating for that by either eating more to stroke dopamine so you feel better or using recreational drugs or using alcohol too much or doing things that are just not healthy for your system, which also harms your microbiome, which then makes it easier to get stressed to begin with. Right. So you have to really examine your life. If you're somebody that experiences stress chronically on a regular basis, you have to examine your life to understand, like, what are the sources of stress for you? Now, many times it can be irrational. Right. So there could be things that you can't necessarily cut out, but there could be toxic people in your life. There could be a toxic work environment. There could be 
you know, you're not, you know, you're not sleeping enough, right? Because you stay up late doing something that you probably shouldn't be uh, doing instead of sleeping. There's lots of little things that you can examine to go, okay, are there things I can improve, cut out, change, so I can reduce the drivers of stress in my system. Now I can start working on a constitution that'll be, make me more resilient to stress. This is where psychobiotics can come in handy as well, right? Um, so, Foods, reducing foods that we know harm the microbiome, increasing diversity of foods that we know will improve the microbiome, getting outside and encountering nature, eating in nature if you can is really important, mitigating stress as much as you can, whether it's through modification of lifestyle or adding in new behaviors or cutting things out that you know drive stress. And then you can utilize things like psychobiotics that can help manage stress. And then the last thing I would say is exercise. Mm -hmm. right resistance training especially i wouldn't do for anyone that's suffering from gut or immune health issues and all that i wouldn't do a lot of high intensity cardio stuff right um, because it can feel good temporarily because it can release a lot of endorphins but studies do show that high intensity cardio does increase um leaky gut and so it can be counterproductive right? It can drive a lot of inflammation through the body. If you're perfectly healthy and you're an athlete and all that, and that's what you do, do it, right? But if you're somebody that's trying to manage your health, manage your gut health, your immune health, and you're like, okay, I, I keep hearing I should be working out, what you should be doing is kind of low intensity cardio, you know, walking, walking uphill, that kind of thing, and then resistance training. Now, why resistance training is important is because when you do resistance training, and, it, and you don't have to be a gym rat, right? You don't have to go and lift for an hour. Those are all kind of things that people have in their mind that restricts them from doing it. All you have to do is have a couple of dumbbells or kettlebells and there's so many programs out there where you can do 15, 20 minutes of some sort of resistance training. Just take some muscle groups close to failure or to failure, right? Just by doing some compound movements right? That is enough. You don't have to be a bodybuilder to get benefit from it. Uh, but the reason why that helps a lot is number one, you will find if you're stressed and you do resistance training, it will burn off some of that stress energy, right? It'll it'll reduce cortisol and it'll improve oxytocin, uh, which makes you feel better. It'll also increase dopamine, which will make you feel better. Uh, number two, when you do resistance trainings, your muscles release compounds called myokines, myokines are these compounds and this huge variety of compounds that your muscles make that actually can be really good for your gut, can dramatically reduce inflammation in the gut, can dramatically improve motility in the gut, can improve diversity of microbes in the gut, and can improve your body's ability to utilize a larger variety of foods. So there's lots of things that occur when you do resistance training that is good for your gut. And then once it's good for your gut, it becomes good for everything else in your system. You'll also sleep better. You'll rest better. You want to, you want adequate recovery. You don't want to overwork. That's another problem that you see people doing. So, so if you add that in to it as well, these are all things that you can just add in. Most of them doesn't, don't cost much of, uh, don't cost much at all. And they will give you a better basis for all the other therapeutics and things that you may do, right? You see, biohacking tricks and all that here and there, you can't overcome your foundational health issue by hacking your way through it without dealing with the foundations. You can add the hacks, which are fantastic, right? You can do the saunas, you can do the cold plunges, you can do all these things, you can take NMN, all of those things are beneficial, but they don't circumvent the foundation. You got to get the foundation in and the, some of the things I mentioned help the foundation. No, you said so many things that are just so impactful. And to your point, uh, don't have to cost a lot of money. You can't supplement your way or biohack your way out of the basics. People don't love to hear that because it requires accountability and work and being like, yeah, I'm the problem maybe, or there's other people or things in my life that are still the problem. I always joke, I uh, in my dissertation, I actually put about removing pro-inflammatory people from your life because it is so important. And it's something that you're not going to get at vitamin shop. Um, and I love the idea. I always, I joke and say like, make germs cool again. I think it's so important. I remember reading a study about kids who grew up on farms and parents who wash the dishes with, uh, you know, like a sponge as opposed to a dishwasher, having greater microbial diversity later in life. And so, um, and also if there's any single people listening, going on walking dates can be great for your microbiome. So we've learned, um, a lot of things today. I could talk to you for hours, obviously, but your time is important. So I want to 
wrap up with a couple rapid fire questions and then you can tell everybody where they can follow you and learn more and maybe see you even lecture live and all of that. So are you ready? I am. I love rapid fire. Okay. We'll start with an easy one. So um, I feel like people have gotten way out of control with their morning and nighttime routines doing 90 steps. So what is maybe a morning or nighttime routine non-negotiable that is fairly simple? That's not a 90 step process. Uh, so for me, uh, a morning routine that's important is uh, waking up and and breathing. Uh, like I, I do a lot of deep breaths when I first wake up. It, it's a good way to kind of set your sympathetic parasympathetic balance. When you wake up, you know your cortisol levels are going to be higher. And so you want to avoid anything that may spike a little bit of stress in you, right? So uh, if for a lot of people you wake up, one of the first things you think about doing is grabbing your phone and kind of looking at messages and things like that. Unfortunately, some of those things can be stressful if you look at it, which can then set you all out of balance for the rest of the day. So one of the first things I try to do when I wake up is just do some deep breathing. And it doesn't have to be anything complicated. We're talking about like eight to 10 deep diaphragmatic breaths or, or box breathing, whatever uh, you know makes you feel better. Um, and then I like to work out in the morning. Uh, I need my coffee first, uh, right? I have my coffee. And then, and then I work out in the morning. And and one of the new things I've been doing is I've been brushing my teeth after coffee and after working out. Um, overnight when you sleep, obviously we all get a larger amount of microbes growing in your mouth. Uh, one of the interesting things about that is a lot of the nitric oxide producing bacteria grow on your tongue overnight. And when you wake up in the morning, they're actively producing nitric oxide. And so you could take advantage of that, of their role by getting your workout and movement in early in the morning, because you have a higher degree of nitric oxide production in your body during that time. Now, if you go and you brush and you wash and clean off your mouth, you'll lose a lot of those microbes before you start your day and, and, and do your workouts. So that's a very, um, you know, a basic thing for me. Nighttime, I admittedly, I have to improve my own routine. But one of the things I try to do is really cut down on the, you know, blue light exposure towards the evening. Um, but I also do things that are calming to me. You know, you just have to find things that are like that, that kind of bring you down a little bit, uh, bring your, your um, you know, nervous system activation down a little bit. For me, that may be watching, you know, something on, on TV and I'll put on my blue, blue blocking glasses and I'll watch some dumb reality show. A lot of people get stressed by those things. To me, it's just so idiotic that it's very relaxing because it takes no brain power to just watch the spectacle, right? Um, or I have a sauna. Oftentimes I'll do sauna before bed and I'll take a nice warm shower uh, and that actually makes me sleep cooler uh, when I sleep. So a couple things like that, that, that are non-negotiable for me. I love that. I also watch garbage reality TV because it's the one time that I don't find myself opening up 30 tabs to research something. Totally. And I'm like, I just want to see the drama. Yep. Okay. What is currently the biggest gut health scam uh, or myth that you're seeing trending in the industry that you perhaps want to either myth bust or be like, guys, enough of that? Yeah, I'll, I'll mention uh, I'll mention two things. Um, one is uh, what we talked about earlier: this kitchen sink probiotic idea, right? That more is better. It, that's not at all true, right? Um, the vast majority of probiotic studies—I'm talking about 98, 99 percent of probiotic studies—were done on one strain at three to five billion CFUs. There's very, very little uh, research on these 15, 20, 30 strain products. Um, that are at 30, 40, 50 billion plus CFUs, right? So there's very little research to validate that those things have any benefit at all. And in fact, there's some research to show that they may actually be harmful. And so want to stay away from those, right? So divorce yourself from this more, more is better idea. In fact, be a little bit wary anytime someone formulates a probiotic with lots of strains and lots of CFU counts, because you know that that's their only target, right? And, and they're just following an old dogma. So that's one thing. Um, number two is this concept around like um, killing and reseeding, killing and reseeding, right? Uh, I think I think we overuse um, antimicrobials. 
Um, you know, antibiotics are clearly overused, and I think most people agree with that. But then, you know, holistic health docs are like, well, I don't use antibiotics, but I use antimicrobials, right? Many of them are broad spectrum. Many of them kill lots of things. They kill good things and bad things, right? So we certainly overuse those. And I think more often than not, using microbes to control microbes is a more effective way than trying to just decimate and kill things and then reseed and rebalance the gut. It just doesn't happen in that sequence. You know, that's a that's kind of an old idea that does to me doesn't have a lot of validity. I love that. Um, as a gut health expert, what is one thing you would literally never ingest, surround yourself with, or put in or around your environment or body? Mm, that's a great question. Um, let me think. And it doesn't even have to be a physical product. It could be like, I don't know, a song, an environment. It could be anything. Yeah. Um, I would, I would say, um, okay. Uh, it would, here's a concept that I wouldn't allow myself to adapt to. Right. And the concept is isolationism. Right. So I think one of the most beneficial things we do um, as humans is interact physical interaction with each other, right? In small groups, one-on-one, -on -one, hugging, being in close encounters. That's in fact, one of the key ways in which we spread microbes between each other and we create diversity within a given uh, ecosystem, right? We know that people that live within a household uh, all influence each other's microbiomes in a very significant way, uh, in a bad way and a good way, right? So if someone within the, the household has a dysfunctional microbiome that actually can create dysfunction in the microbiomes of others. There was a study on one individual in the household taking an antibiotic, and then they followed that individual's microbiome and they saw all this disruption, but they saw a similar disruption to people that lived in the household with that individual that wasn't taking an antibiotic, right? So it's very clear that we influence one another's microbiomes. And so number one, I wouldn't uh, allow myself to be comfortably isolated, which a lot of people do, especially if you're single and maybe you just go to work and come back and you know you don't have a bunch of people in your household with you. It's very easy with technology today to just be by yourself, right? You're interacting with people all the time, but you're by yourself, right? So that's one thing that I think I, I wouldn't allow myself to get comfortable with. I always wanna push myself to be out amongst people. Uh, and then number, number two, if I could add to that, would be not, surrounding myself with people that have really dysfunctional microbiomes and practices because they can influence your microbiome in a negative way. They can drive you to take, you know, you're taking two steps forward with your health and then you'll take one step back because somebody in your household just doesn't care. They're eating all the wrong things. They're making all the wrong choices, you know, and, and they will influence your ecosystem and they will influence your environment uh, in, a, in a significant way. So you need to be around people, but you need to be around the right people. You all heard it here first. The next time you don't want to go to something, you could say, it's not good for my gut microbiome. I just can't go. Yeah. It's so easy to do that, right? So I, in 2019, as I was building Microbiome Labs, uh, as a company, we did 160 conferences. Wow. Right? That's a lot in a year. A lot. Right? I myself went to 55 to 60 mm. conferences, which means I'm going to one every week, uh, which means I'm traveling, you know, three, four days every week, right? Uh, and this is globally, not just in the US. Um, that becomes tiring, but it's a thing that you need to do for your business, right? So it was business driven. But I also found that my health was, despite traveling so much, my health was actually really good uh, in throughout 2019, because I was encountering so many people. On a, on, a, on a weekly basis, right? I'm in rooms with 150, 200 new people every week. Uh, and, and the more I interact with the people, hugging people, shaking hands, sitting around, talking, and all that, the more resilient I became, right? So flying 400,000 miles that year had no impact on my system. I didn't get sick once. I didn't put on any weight. I, wasn't, I didn't feel tired, right? I'm going through all these time zones, but I'm engaging with people. Right. So it's it's just too easy today to be isolated because of our technology. Just know that your microbes need you to get out and encounter other microbes.
I love that. There's so much conversation nowadays about co-regulating your nervous system, but now it's going to be all about co-regulating your microbiomes. Okay. One, I love that. All right. One last question. And then you can tell everybody where they can follow you and all the things. Um, All right. So if you could give your younger self one piece of either career, health, or life advice, I know that's a really broad question, but I feel like sometimes in certain times of our lives, we're hyper-focused on one area. So it sounds like for a while you were crushing it with career stuff. You still are, but then sometimes we find balance in other areas. So looking back, is there a piece of advice you'd like to give your younger self or leave with the listeners around this time of the year when it maybe can be, uh, you're reflecting back on the year and. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a great question. I would say, so fortunately for me, the way things ended up working out was exactly how I wanted it to work out. Right. But it's not the road that I thought I would get to, I would, I would take to get to where, uh, where I've come to for myself. Um, so, and during those, those travels, the through journey, the journey of life, there's lots of parallels thing, uh, uh, things that can seem daunting. Um, and, and things go awry and you're like, and it feels defeating in the moment. You feel like you failed and you feel like, Oh my God, I'm not going to achieve this dream I have because now my plan has been derailed. Right. Um, one of the things that I would advise my younger self was plan to fail, plan for your plans to get derailed, plan for all of that, because it's going to happen. Right. And it and it doesn't matter. It's in fact the zigs and the zags that'll get you to where you want to be. Right. And and when you look back and you look at the things that didn't work out, that you were so sure was the thing that was going to get you to where you want to be, that was actually the critical step in avoiding a big pitfall or avoiding a big issue and so on. Right. So all the zigs and zags of life, all of the um, mishaps and the failures. And all that are very, very poignant and important part of your journey that'll actually get you to where you want to go if if you are making decisions based on your future self, right? And that's the part I would tell my my uh, my pre, my younger self is that people more often than not are making decisions based on their past, right? The experiences you learn in your past and based on your present situation, right? But if you want to be something else in the future, you can envision what that person looks like, what they've done, what they've accomplished and all that, how they may feel. You want to make decisions based on that person. How would that person do it? Not this person or the past person, because then you'll never get to that level, right? Your thoughts, your ideas, your decisions, all every little minuscule decision you make, your framework in which you see life is dictated will will dictate where you go in life, right? If you're stuck in the past and you make decisions based on fear and, and things that have happened in the past, you'll never progress. You'll always be that person that kept suffering in the past. And so one of the things that I learned over time was to daydream and to be the person I want to be, but be that person now, right? Uh, before anyone ever knew who I was or cared what I had to say, I walked around and felt as if I was someone who had something important to say, right? I It, it didn't matter that nobody cared. Nobody knew me, uh, right? I still felt the same way I feel now when there are people that want to hear what I have to say and want to want my time uh, for that for that reason, that because it may bring them value, right? I've been this person for years before I ever was this person. And so make think about your future self. Think about who they are, what they've done, the experiences they've had, the framework they would have at that time, right? And make your decisions today with that person's mindset. Uh, I gave a quick analogy. Um, imagine you, you're you're standing in front of this thing. And I, and I remember uh, this actually happening when I was in Cambodia or somewhere, right? There's this, there's this temple thing that you can scale and it's like a thousand steps right? And you look at the top and you go, I really want to be up there, right? That that looks awesome. But the, the journey looks very daunting, right? And so if you stand here and you look at the journey ahead of you and you go, I'm kind of tired. I didn't really sleep last night. Did I eat enough? Do I have enough water? You think about all your present limitations. You look at those stairs and you go, okay, I don't think I'm going to make it. 
you know, should I even try? What if I go 400 steps and I'm stuck? And then I need to like sit down for the next hour and get ready and get rested or something, right? You think of all these limitations, right? But I actually physically looked at myself up there and I go, what would that person say? What would the Quran who's been up there now for the last hour say? He would look down at me and go, just take the first step, right? You already made it. You're already up here. Just need to take the first step. And so I was like, all right, take the first step. Then you take the second and third. And before you know it, you are that person that's up there, right? So look at your future self and, and, and then listen to what your future self would tell you about the decision you're trying to make out of often out of fear, out of, you know, limitations and all that. That to me is a very, very important framework and, and lesson to be successful at whatever it is you want to be successful at, even your health. Yeah, that's a powerful and seminal message to leave people with. If you ever get tired of uh, probiotic research, you definitely have a future in uh, public speaking and positive affirmations. So we love that pivot for you. Um, this has been amazing. I could literally talk to you for hours. I'm going to have to fly to Chicago and pick your brain more. But um, in the meantime, how can listeners support you, your work? How can they follow you, learn more? Let them know. And everything will also be in the show notes, um, just so you know as well. Yeah. Um, you know, reach out to me in on, on my Instagram page. It's the handle is Kieran Biome. So K-I-R-A-N-B-I-O-M-E. Uh, on Facebook, um, I'm somewhat active there as well. I'm more active on Instagram. Facebook, it's just, I think if you just put in Kieran Christian, you'll come, you'll find my my page. Um, and I try to interact with people as much as I can. I try to put as much information out there that hopefully brings value to their health journey. Um, and I, of course, announce talks and travel and things like that on there as well. Um, but, you know, my my whole goal is, uh, you know, bringing value without expectation. That's my thing. So if if my time may be valuable to you, then I try to give it to you without any expectation for what it means to me or returns to me in process. So I try to do that with just strangers online as well, right? People have questions, they ask me and I try to point them in the right direction. So feel free to interact with me there. I love it. Thank you so much for being a guest today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks.